Welcome to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Here's your host, Amanda Galbraith. Hello, 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 everyone. I hope you're having a wonderful Friday. Uh, that's right, it is not Chatter That Matters that joins you today at noon. In fact, you for the next 13 weeks, you get to ride along with me and the team on Free For All Friday. It's an extra two hours, so from noon to two, Every Friday, we'll be talking about the biggest stories of the week. We'll be talking to the newsmakers, and we'll hopefully be hearing from you on the text board and in call-ins as we, uh, we unpack the news. So I'm really excited to be doing this, all of you. I love Free For All Friday from 1 to 2, and to get the chance to kind of do a little bit more of a deeper dive into the stories of the week, uh, I think it's going to be awesome. And we have a great show today, because uh, there's lots of news happening this week. It's funny, some weeks in the summer, you take a look and you think, all right, you know, saddle up is going to be a short show, but this one we had we had a surplus of news. Everything from the insanely insane election here in Ontario, which I'm going to talk about in a bit. And we're going to have um, Labor Minister Monty McNaughton on, who uh, was an architect of one of the key parts of that victory, which was uh, incredible for those who've been listening in the Ontario stations all day today. We're also going to talk to Ukrainian MP on the ground. It's been 100 days since the invasion in Ukraine, and I think that's an important story for us to talk about. It's something we talked about on on the show um, quite a bit in the beginning, and I would argue it's fallen off the news. Um, so I think we need to remind ourselves what's happening there. We're also going to get from between one and two to debate the big stories of the week. Decriminalization of drugs. Uh, BC's announced that. Are we in favor of it or are we not? Handgun bans. Do we think it's going to do what the Liberals say it's going to do? All of that and more. Uh, and I'm excited to talk to you about today. But one thing I did want to unpack, and I know Evan, when he does his show from Monday to Thursdays, he does a bit of a rant. And I will attempt to rant. <laughs> I'm a pretty happy person, so I don't often rant. But I do think the Ontario election is worth a pause, not just from an Ontario perspective, but from a national one. Uh, and for those of you looking for the results, um, the PCs won a crushing majority of 83, 83 seats, which is incredible. NDP, 31. Uh, so they still official opposition status, but lost. The Liberal Party of Ontario uh, only got eight seats. They only went up one. Uh, did not get official party status here, which is remarkable. And, of course, we had one Green and one Independent elected. Now, Doug Ford, who, if anyone remembers when he was elected four years ago, and I uh, worked for the mayor of Toronto um, on his campaign at the time eight years ago when we ran against then City Councillor Doug Ford, uh, who was running to be mayor of Toronto and was defeated. Uh, if you told me four years ago that he would have gone to this, rumped to this victory, I would have not believed it. Um, and I think there's an incredible metamorphosis we've seen from him as a politician, but also from him as a party. So I want you to listen. Here's Doug Ford, who told his supporters last night they've made history and changed what it means to be a progressive conservative. This is my proudest achievement as a leader of this party, building a new coalition, expanding our base, creating a more inclusive party where everyone matters. Because never in our lifetime has it been more important for a party to represent all of Ontario. And that's an interesting piece, and we're going to unpack that quite a bit in the show today, right? Because I think people, and historically conservatives, when they viewed their party as a smaller coalition, as a bit of a rump, they've gotten themselves into electoral trouble. And I think you see the fruits of that federally right now, right? You saw a bit of that potentially in Alberta, and we've talked about that on Free For All Friday previously. What's the future of the conservative movement? And for Doug Ford, it's about expanding that coalition. Um, you know, he made appeals to Liberal voters, to NDP voters, last night even after the election results came in. And some are arguing he's now the most powerful conservative in the country, which is interesting. Doug Ford, the most powerful conservative in the country. Um, 
And again, not a sentence I thought I'd say. I got to be totally <laughs> candid with you. But I think there's a lot of validity to that, right? He's built this blue collar, hard hat coalition. We're going to talk to Monty about in a little bit. Um, other pieces of huge news: both the Liberal leader and the NDP leader were knocked out of the knocked out of the running. They both announced last night that they would no longer be running. Ontario leader, Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca, told his supporters that you know he was disappointed. Um, he hoped to grow the movement. Um, this is him commenting last night, announcing he's stepping down. It will, however, be a movement that will be led by a new leader. Earlier this evening, I informed our party president of my decision to step down from the leadership of our party, and I have asked him to meet with the executive to set a leadership contest for as soon as is reasonable. Now, I don't think he had a choice, to be totally honest with you, and I think a lot of folks would say that, right? Uh, they had high hopes to at least achieve party status, which you think would be bare minimum, if not official opposition status. There was a lot of chatter about that. If you look at the actual um, vote count, they did receive the exact same amount of popular vote as the NDP. Um, both have 25%. But the NDP got 25% of the seats and the Liberal only got 7% of the seats, which tells you a little bit about how efficient their vote is. But Stephen Del Duca didn't win his own seat. He didn't get official party status and he didn't get official opposition. So when you look at that, look at that narrowly down, he could either fight and fight and fight for weeks on end with Liberal infighting or he could have made the right decision, which I think he did last night in a very classy way to step down. Andrea Horvath also announced that she stepped down as the Conservatives cruise to a majority government. She had a very emotional speech where she said it's time for her to pass the torch. But tonight, it's time for me to pass the torch, to pass the baton, to hand off the leadership of the NDP. And you know what? It makes me sad, but it makes me happy because our team is so strong right now. And you hear Horvath in tears there. Um, she'd been the NDP leader for 13 years. So I think we have a renewed conservative supermajority government. We have the Liberals and the NDP. Both of their leaders are now not. They have, they have leadership movements right now here in Ontario. Um, I think to my mind, and I, as we know, I'm a conservative, but I think the progressive movement itself in this country, at least in Ontario, needs to look inward a little bit. Um, you know, they ran that campaign saying no to highways, which were controversial, understandably, um, you know, talking about niche issues in ways that did not appeal to the broad spectrum of voters. Uh, and I think the results of that are what you see here today. So I think there's a, a lot of inward looking from the, the Liberals and the NDP to see what they can do next. The other thing I did want to talk about, and I think it's an important one, right, and it's, it's sort of being lost a little bit in the news here, is voter turnout. We had the worst voter turnout we've ever had in Ontario in the history of this province in votes. It is unbelievably low. So we have 43% of the vote turned out, right? That's 43% of eligible Ontarians turned out to vote. That's with extra days, extra days at the advanced polls. That's with more opportunity. People just decided they didn't feel like doing it. And yes, I know, I know that sometimes elections are interesting and time to vote the bums out. Last time uh, election was 57%, right? And that was because people were mobilized to get rid of the Liberals and Kathleen Wynne at the time. Um, usually vote kind of shifts between 48 to 66%. But the fact that it was 43% to me is a wake-up call for us as, frankly, people like me who work around politics sometimes, for media who talk about politics. Do we need to talk about it in a different way? Do we need to think through what the appeal is? Because at the end of the day, yes, parties are still getting elected and we see there were results. But this 43%, less than half of people in this province who could vote, voted. 
And I think that is a huge problem. And it's something that we need to think about and all of these parties need to think about and perhaps be incentivized to change their mind. And if you actually look at this, um, I looked at it because I was like, okay, is this out of step with the other levels of government, right? With, is this out of step with nationally? So 2015 federal election, 68.5%. Highest turnout since 1993, probably because, again, they were voting out the Conservatives and voting in uh, the federal Liberals. Um, 2011, 61.4%. So that's like 20% higher. <laughs> and that was the third lowest voter turnout in Canadian history. So I think if you're at home, if you didn't vote, you know, I understand. It may be nicer to look outside. I'm looking outside right now. It's beautiful here where I'm, I'm broadcasting from. Lots of sun. Uh, but... It is your civic duty. It's important. And if you don't feel like they're speaking to you, you should raise your voice and let people know that this is not the issues that I care about, that I want you to talk about this, because we need to instill that that need to vote, that desire to vote, that duty to vote. When I was a kid, I remember my dad talked to me about this is one of the most important things you can do. I've never missed a vote in my life. I've been volunteering on election campaigns since I was 19 years old. Um, it's an honor for me to do that. Uh, and I think it's an honor for us to have the opportunity to vote. So interesting results here in Ontario. We're certainly going to spend some time unpacking that throughout the next two hours of the show because I think it's important for Ontario, but it's also important for the rest of the country, what it says about the Conservative movement, what it says about the Labour movement, what it says about voter turnout. So we're going to unpack all of that. In particular, we're going to unpack it with our next guest, which I mentioned earlier. Um, Monty McNaughton, he's a recently re-elected MPP from London, Ontario area. He's Labour minister. He was the architect of a massive political play to get organized labor behind the conservatives. So he joins us next after the break to give us an inside peek about how all that went down. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. is Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. Happy Friday, as always. Uh, we've got a big doozy of a show today, over two hours, so we're with you till two. And one of the big stories we're still talking about today is the results of the Ontario election, which I think are monumental. Um, and just to recap that, the PCs stormed a victory, 83 seats, um, for a majority government to increase their seat count is almost unheard of. Um, Liberals did not get uh, official party status. They've lost their leader at eight seats. NDP do have official opposition status, but also, uh, you know, also lost their leader last night. And a big part of why that victory was possible, um, the person, one of the people, architects behind it, joins me right now, Ontario Labour Minister Monty McNaughton, who... Uh, was the architect of what we call a blue-collar conservative coalition. Monty, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, Amanda, great to be with you today. Yeah, and Monty is a fellow Southern Ontario. He's, for, he's in the London area. He just was re-elected, um, but I'm a Southern Ontario girl, so it's always happy to have a fellow Southern Ontario friend on the show, for sure. Well, great to be with you, and uh, people are pretty <laughs> excited across southwestern Ontario today. Yeah, so just before we get into the meat of what you've been up to um, over the last three years, which I think is a really interesting story, um, you won your election last night. Uh, how did it feel? feels great. I mean, just very humbled to be reelected uh, to represent the people of uh, Lambton, Kent, Middlesex. And we had a, a great celebration last night. I was with my wife, Kate, my, my eight-year-old daughter, Annie, my parents, and uh, lots of supporters. And it was just a, a really great feeling. 
And, you know, politicians all have all kinds of you know, funny traditions on election days. Um, I, one I know played video, always played video games that day. Some people like to work the phones or do GOTV. Some folks like to, you know, I, one went to the spa. Uh, what did you do on election day? What's your secret tradition or, or thing that you do every, every E-Day? Well, I mean, I just kill time. I just can't wait to get to 9 o'clock uh, on election <laughs> night when the polls close. I was, um, you know, driving people around. I was saying thanks to our campaign team yesterday, but really just uh, putting in time to uh, get to, to the closing of the polls. All right. And then they and then they closed. Then you had your results and you still had your job, which is probably pretty good and very important to the PCs, given what happened. So I want to talk to you about this story. And, and, and we've chatted about it before. Um, you know, one of the biggest stories of this election was the movement of organized labor towards voting conservative or at least elements of it to endorsing the conservatives. Um, you know, it's a remarkable change considering like four years ago, eight years ago. Um, you know, there was a coalition of unions um, organizing and campaigns and running multimillion dollar campaigns against conservatives. You were kind of the architect of that change. So can you tell me, how did that come about? Well, look, I, I want to begin by giving the credit to uh, Doug Ford. I mean, he appeals to uh, a cross-section of uh, people uh, across the province, uh, working uh, men and women. And, you know, we believe together uh, in having the backs of ordinary people who do extraordinary things. So back in June of uh, 2019, uh, Premier Ford asked me to become uh, the Minister of Labour, and we really hit the ground running. I mean, I remember in the first, you know, three or four months, we met with over 100 uh, Labour leaders. I went uh, to the Labour Day Parade uh, in Toronto to uh, march with uh, the women and men, those blue-collar workers who are building Ontario, and uh, we just never let up. I mean, we worked really hard for three years uh, building relationships, uh, building trust, but most importantly, finding a uh, common ground. And the one thing from the early days of, of this mission that struck me is that people want to have well-paying jobs with pensions and benefits. And that aligns with uh, Doug Ford and, and the Conservative Party. And uh, that's what we're going to do. You said the word mission there, and that intrigues me because, um, you know, certainly – we've all dated, right? I mean, you're, you just mentioned you're with Kate, you're married, like you court people. Um, you know, this obviously wasn't, I can't imagine this was an easy sell <laughs> in the beginning. Um, you know, I'm looking at a story that says in the first 100 days as labor minister, you met with 100 labor leaders. Um, and then it was a conscious decision to kind of go hard after these trade unions. So when you were court, when you reached out and said, hey, I want to meet with you, like were they, it was obviously they'll do a courtesy meeting, but did you get a lot of skepticism? Was it a hard sell? Were you sending flowers? Like, how did you get how did you get your foot in the door to actually have those conversations? Well, certainly it was to you know establish uh, trust and and to establish uh, a relationship. But you know, Amanda, as you mentioned, I mean, I, I come from southwestern Ontario. I mean, I was raised uh, in my hometown of Newbury, like population four hundred people, and I grew up in my family's home hardware store and, and lumberyard, and I grew up with. Uh, people that build houses that are plumbers and electricians and and boiler makers and I have respect uh, for these people I mean it's it's where I'm from and I, I think that allowed me to establish that uh, relationship and of course you know Premier Ford appeals uh, to all of these people I mean he's such a big uh, champion of uh, the skilled trades 
And he and I have been really clear. I mean, not every young person has to go to university to be successful in life. There's uh, well-paying jobs uh, in the skilled trades with pensions and benefits. And from that, we really established, I think, common ground. And, and that's how, you know, successful relationships are built. Um, you know, we're watching a federal leadership campaign play out where there's a very clear conversation about having what it means to be a conservative in Canada um, and kind of the future of that movement. And it's either that you're with us or you're against us and those sorts of things. We've seen the federal conservatives, particularly under the previous leader, try to make an appeal to um, more of that, you know, the blue collar, or whatever you want to call it, like lunch bucket crew. Although I think that metaphor is a bit outdated um, and unsuccessfully. So do you think there are learnings, lessons from what you've achieved here in Ontario, this sort of shift for other conservative movements or other conservative governments or aspiring governments in this country, particularly the federal side, who are having this sort of knockdown, drag them out battle about the heart of that party? So, look, absolutely. Um, but it takes time and it takes uh, a lot of work. I mean, I kept my head down and credit to, to my team uh, in my office and to Premier Ford uh, and his team. I mean, we put our head down, we worked. Uh, really, really hard, and uh, establish that uh, common ground, uh, as I said. But I think the other thing that's uh, really important to realize is there's no doubt that uh, these men and women who work uh, blue-collar jobs feel that the NDP and Liberals have uh, abandoned them. I mean, we're seeing, you know, in some cases, these other parties, you know, they're more concerned about statues or street names than they are about creating opportunities, meaningful opportunities for well-paying jobs with pensions uh, and benefits. And they feel abandoned by uh, these, these left-wing parties, and um, they're more aligned with, with conservatives. I mean, I can't tell you how many times uh, I've been around the province meeting with labour leaders. I remember in particular I was up north in Kapuskasing at a pulp and paper mine with a Unifor leader, and we spent two hours together. He talked about his children. He talked about fishing and hunting and about having, you know, well-paying jobs for uh, his members. Those are things that are conservative to me. And uh, I will argue, you know, tooth and nail that everything that Doug Ford and I have done on this front uh, is conservative. Uh, but most importantly, it's in the best interests of uh, the working men and women of this province. I've got a minute left, um, Monty. I just want to ask you, one of the criticisms of this has been that this is a Doug Ford, you know, you or Doug Ford phenomenon and this won't stick. So once Doug Ford leaves, because he has that unique appeal across sort of, you know, party lead project. Do you think that this this change will stay or is this kind of a one time you Premier Ford scenario and this evaporates? Well, look, um, you know, my advice to uh, conservatives and, and to politicians, quite frankly, you know, we need to be on the side of uh, workers. I mean, uh, men and women uh, who are raising families, uh, building communities, uh, building the future of not only Ontario, uh, but Canada. Uh, I believe this is uh, something we're going to see uh, more of. And, uh, you know, I'm going to continue uh, working every single day uh, with Doug Ford and others to continue building this coalition. I mean, this morning, the first thing I did was to get up and meet with uh, construction workers in London, members of Layuna, uh, apprentices that are going on, you know, to, to well-paying, meaningful careers uh, in the skilled trades. And uh, I, I'm proud of what we've done. Uh, there's more work to do, uh, but workers will always know that Doug Ford's on their side. 
Awesome. Well, congratulations again on your uh, victory last night, Monty. Thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Amanda. It's uh, been 100 days since the war in Ukraine started. The Free For All Friday Roundtable continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, the extra long, extra packed edition of Free For All Friday uh, that we have with you today. So uh, if you missed the beginning of the of the the two hours, um, Chatter That Matters is taking a break this summer, but we'll be back in the fall. And in the interim, you get me for not just one, but two hours every Friday. So uh, you can tune in from noon to two for the next 13 weeks. We'll be talking about some of the biggest stories in the country, talking to the newsmakers, um, like we just talked to, for example, Minister Monty McNaughton, who had, uh, I think, a really interesting take on the sea change that happened in the Ontario election, on why why workers, why blue-collar workers may, you know, feel abandoned or have been moving towards conservative, the conservative, or at least the Ontario PCs, and feel abandoned by your typical NDP um, liberal coalition that they've been voting for in the past. And it's certainly a story that we're going to keep watching. We're going to debate later on in the show when we get to the actual hour-long roundtable from 1 to 2 o'clock. Uh, but today is a significant day. Um, it's an important day. Uh, it's been 100 days since Russian ple- President Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. And that's something we've talked about the war on the show. Um, I've certainly debated if Canada's doing enough. Uh, you know, do we need to do more? Uh, what else should we be? What, what donation can we do? What should NATO be doing? I think that's been a huge discussion. Um, but I don't think anyone would argue that it's fallen off the news. And I don't think that's okay either, right? Because just because it's less interesting to us, just because the summer is nice and you want to go for a walk does not mean that millions of Ukrainians are not suffering, does not mean that as uh, as a country, Canada does not have um, a duty to that country to keep this story going, to keep talking about it, to keep making those donations, to keep it front of mind. And I think that is an important thing for us to think about today. And we're hopefully going to be joined by Ukrainian MP, uh, Member of Parliament, Lisa Vasilenko, but she's, uh, we're just having a hard time getting a hold of her right now. So um, I do want to put it open to calls. If you want to chime in on this story and talk about it, do you think we're doing enough? Do you think it's okay that we're no longer talking about Ukraine? If you want to call in 1-855-633-1010 or text 71010, uh, can you believe it's been 100 days since the war started? Um, I frankly cannot. That came up to me yesterday that it was going to be 100 days today. Um, and here's a tweet that was actually put out by Ms. Vasilenko. Uh, a hundred days of pain and suffering for Ukraine. Families got wiped out. 261 kids killed. 463 wounded. These are not numbers. These are stories and their life of, of unloved lives. The world owes a victory to all of them. And I think that's an interesting thing for us to think about, right? Um, you know, there are photos right now online of um, hundreds of people queuing for water in Maripol. Um, the basic water, access to water is being rationed by the Russians right now. What is that like on the ground? I cannot even imagine. Um, I cannot imagine what it's, it's like to live like that, to have your home bombed. Um, you know, there is a massacre happening in the middle of Europe, and frankly, we are, as a country, I don't know, are looking close enough at it. Um, so one 1010 if you want to weigh in on this story and talk about this. This was huge news a while ago. This was huge news, you know, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days ago, and I feel like, frankly, we're not – 
um, paying enough attention to it. You know, President Zelensky's come out and said tens of thousands of Ukrainians have died. It's been an interesting thing to watch him as well, right, speak about this. Um, Some are arguing this is the first social media war that's ever happened, right? It's the first war where it's happened where we get access to uh, what's happening on the ground on a day-to-day basis. I certainly, when this war first started, um, you know, followed all these accounts, followed Russian, or sorry, Russian, um, Ukrainian news outlets, um, took a look at those online and just followed that story closely every single day. And it was overwhelming for me. Um, We see misinformation from both sides come out. But also we've seen Zelensky use the power of social media, I think, to mobilize the world in a way where, frankly, this wouldn't have been paid attention to um, as as much as it has been done so far, Uh, which, which has been fascinating, right? We saw him speak at the Cannes Film Festival, which is remarkable. He spoke at the Grammys. Uh, can you imagine Winston Churchill going uh, during World War II um, at an awards ceremony to talk about this? And it struck me as both absurd but utterly necessary uh, because otherwise, how do we pay attention? Um, you know, how do, we, how do we keep this front of mind? How do we make sure that we're, we're keeping these Ukrainians safe? And I'm getting some interesting texts coming in at 71010. Uh, and one point is it's going to be back in the news soon enough thanks to global fuel, fertilizer, and food shortages um, because of sanctions and other disruptions, which will lead to political unrest due to food shortages. So that's a fair point, right? And I think we're all experiencing inflation right now. Um, it's a massive issue in Canada. It's a massive issue around the world. Um, and one of the big – I mean, there's lots of causes for that. The, uh, the pandemic is a cause, but certainly – the war in Ukraine um, is contributing to that, right? Um, Ukraine is considered the breadbasket of Europe, and they supply a lot of the world's wheat, which makes all the food that you eat, which is why this texture is bang on about that, um, and bang on about the fact that there's going to be, uh, you know, increased issues and challenges um, related to that as we move forward. So one eight five five six three three ten ten. if you've if you have a thought about this, if you know someone who's been impacted by the war in Ukraine, um, you know, Canada, as we've talked about quite a bit, uh, is a is a diaspora, one of the biggest diasporas of Ukraine outside of Ukraine itself. Uh, there are millions of Ukrainians here in Canada. A friend of mine works with the Canada Ukraine Foundation. They're an amazing organization that's organizing kits for people to arrive here. We still have refugees coming in every day. Um, evacuations are still happening. I know Canada sent some planes over there earlier to uh, to deal with that. Um, and to bring people here, which is the right thing to do as a country. Because there's been a lot of pressure on Canada that we're not uh, doing enough to support the people of Ukraine. Interesting text here. This needs to be talked about every day. Why is media not on this each day? It's not okay to put in the background. They're fighting a war for this entire free world. This is our problem. This is our war. Thanks so much for the text there. Yeah, it is, right? Because even, you know, we put a show together every week, right? And we take a look at what are the biggest stories of the week. And sometimes you could argue Ukrainian is not that. Um, today, because it's 100 days since that war, and if, if you missed the top end of the, of the program here, it's been 100 days since the war in Ukraine has begun. Um, you know, President Zelensky has estimated that tens of thousands of Ukrainians have died in this war, um, that right now we know potentially that uh, um, Russia is holding up to 20% of Ukrainian land, and there are calls, uh, there are calls for Ukraine to cede some of that territory to end the war, but they've obviously been firm to not do that. Um, we have Ted here calling in from Toronto. Ted, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. The, um, I totally agree with you. I think that, the, you know, basically it started out, everyone was supportive, and it was front-page news and top story in the evening news. 
and it's basically the coverage has disappeared. All the networks have left, and, uh, you know, Zelensky has basically been abandoned by the West. Trudeau went there for photo ops and to wave at everybody, smile for the camera, but nothing is happening. These people are heroically fighting for the country, dying, and uh, we're not doing anything anymore. It's, it's, it's uh, honestly shame on us. It, it's, we're, our response has been pathetic. And Ted, what do you think, what do you want to see more of? What do you think? Do you think we should be more as a Canadian government? Um, do you think that the media needs to be better about bringing this front and centre? What would you like to see change? I'd like to see the media coverage get back to the level that it was initially at. And I'd like to see us set goals and limitations for, for how, you know, we're going to push Russia back and help the Ukraine uh, get their land back. And, and I, nobody wants a nuclear war, but... I think everyone's kind of looking for a way to get this out and and to get this over with, and we need to we need to come together politically with Europe to to box Russia out more. These sanctions really aren't doing a thing to them. Like there's you know nobody's complaining in Russia that we hear of. We that, you know all everything's all the information stopped. We're not getting anything anymore. Yeah, thanks so much, Ted, for that. I appreciate it. I'm going to bring in Alan from St. Catharines. Uh, Alan, we have about 15 seconds for you real quick. I wanted to get to you. 15 seconds? You bet. (laughs) You got it. You you talked about at the beginning of your presentation, this is getting into secondary and tertiary news items on on the media. Okay, that's normal. You're going to have to attract listeners, like TV programs have to attract viewers, and you can't keep on the same. Look, people are interested in Johnny Depp. Can you believe it? So this is what happens. The point Agreed. is. How- Agreed. Totally great take, Alan. And that's why I don't talk about Johnny Depp on the show. <laughs> um, are you debating what your summer plans are going to be? Next up, our weekly segment, Across Canada Road Trip. I'm Amanda Galbraith on iHeartRadio Talk Network. Free-for-all Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. This is the extra-long special edition of Free-for-all Friday, where you get me for two hours every Friday for the next 13 weeks, with the exception of a brief vacation I'm talking taking, which I'll tell you later about. But uh, um, I'm really excited to be doing it. So the first hour of the show, uh, we're going to be uh, doing special interviews, talking about the news, But we're also going to have a weekly segment, uh, and we're going to basically do a cross-Canada road trip and hit every single province and territory over the next 13 weeks. Um, So we haven't quite given it a name. Um, Sam and I are kicking it around, our producer Sam. So uh, feel free to text in at 71010 if you have thoughts or creative things. I'm not great at naming stuff. But um, we are going to talk about amazing places that you should visit um, and why uh, Canada is in a great place to live and a great place to, uh, to see. And, of course, our first guest uh, joins us from beautiful British Columbia. This is Mayor Lisa Helps, Mayor of Victoria, B.C. Um, your Worship, thank you for coming on the show. You're welcome. No one calls me that, but uh, happy to be here. <laughs> I used to uh, work for the... 
Yeah, sorry, it's, it's such an old-fashioned term. So the, the moment I was elected, I kind of outlawed it. But then, uh, anyways, it's, so it's just it's interesting when your worship, it just sounds so, like, formal. And anyways, but sorry, you used to work for... Oh, no, I was just saying, I used to work for the mayor of Toronto. And I when I first started working for him, I, he was first elected John Tory. I wanted him to wear the chain of office because I thought it was like he wanted to look like a mayor. And he was like, absolutely not. He wears it only for ceremonial occasions and hated it that we called him, like, I used to call him your worship just to... Uh, just to annoy him. Um, but it's from what I can, sounds like you are somewhere outside or somewhere beautiful. Um, your, your, your city, um, in the province of BC is known as beautiful BC. Um, and you know, I know a lot of Canadians after the pandemic are thinking about leaving the country and, and going to, but we wanted to do this sort of cross Canada road trip to talk about really great places in the country. And of course, Victoria is on the top of that list. Um, so what's so great about Victoria and why should our listeners consider, uh, going there for a visit? Uh, one of the greatest things about Victoria is actually the scale and the size of the city. So it's a pretty small city in terms of, uh, you know, easy to navigate on foot, uh, by bicycle, of course, by car, even by by a harbor ferry. So there's just, it's a really it's a really easy city to get around. Which means even if you're staying at a hotel in downtown Victoria, you're not far from a hike or a really great bike ride. Or even uh, I know we're going to talk about hidden gems, even a, a jump into the ocean. So I think it's that's that's one of the Victoria's greatest assets is our downtown and the ability to just get around really easily. Um, and I've had the opportunity to go to your city uh, a few times, and I will say one of the it's it's stunning, and the the harbor is stunning, and the food is very delicious, and I love seafood. Um, are there for folks considering going? Are there any really amazing places to eat or secrets that you would uh, you'd like to unveil to our millions of listeners right now? Well, Victoria has a ton of amazing restaurants and kind of everything across the board from really great Italian restaurants. So if you know if people are interested in Italian, it's really fun to actually be a tour guide through my city. So Zambri's is good Italian, as is Il Terrazzo. Uh, both are quite difficult to get a re- reservation at, so uh, book ahead. Um, <laughs> for seafood, uh, there's, there's no shortage of great seafood places. If you want kind of really, really co- casual, quote-unquote, dining, you can go to Redfish Bluefish, which is uh, sold out of uh, sea containers um, uh, right on the ocean and again really really delicious food uh, and and one of the things that I like best about our, our city because it's one of my favorite foods is sushi we've got fantastic sushi like literally caught right out of the ocean and uh, onto our dining plates and uh, there's a restaurant called Nubo uh, and it is right at the Johnson Street bridgehead so right in the heart of downtown and you can sit on the patio and just watch life go by there's walkers and cyclists and all sorts of things happen so those are my top restaurant recommendations. All right, you heard it here. This is from the mayor, and she knows what she's talking about. If you want to go to Victoria, I'm joined by Mayor Lisa Helps, mayor of Victoria, B.C. Um, and you mentioned a little earlier hidden gems. And obviously we know Victoria is the capital of British Columbus, so you have the legislature there. Um, so you have some beautiful buildings. There's the harbor. Um, but what what is a hidden gem that most people wouldn't know, or what are some hidden gems that most people would know about Victoria? Well, I'll give you two. Um, Victoria is a city of neighborhoods, and so the city itself was built around the streetcar network, which obviously doesn't exist anymore. But each uh, each neighborhood has a village center, and there's James Bay Village, Cook Street Village, Fernwood Village. So I'd encourage people to uh, head out of the downtown and look at some of our and experience some of our village centers. And there's again lots of good food and lots of good beer. We can talk about beer in a moment. Uh, <laughs> so those are those are some hidden. No, seriously, like Victoria has great beer. Um, but my, my 
my favorite hidden gem. I'm almost I'm almost hesitant to say this to your millions of listeners because it's like it's a really beautiful, quiet spot. But most people think the Pacific Ocean is cold, and it certainly is. Um, but there's this little tucked away spot uh, off the Gorge Waterway. It's in Vic West neighborhood, uh, Bamfield Park, and it's a great swimming spot. It is actually warm enough to just wear a bathing suit and jump in the ocean. Um, it's easiest actually to get to uh, by walking or cycling from the downtown. There's a bike trail that goes right to it. You can lock up your bike or take off your running shoes and really just jump in the ocean. Uh, it's getting more popular, um, but uh, that is definitely a hidden gem, and we're seeing more and more people using it every summer. All right, so you heard it here first. There's a secret swimming spot that now all of us millions know about um, <laughs> that you can get to. Uh, now, I'm getting a text in here from a listener in Orangeville who says lacrosse is great in Victoria. Truth or or or, uh, or not? Is that a true story? That is a truth, yes. Uh, there is a lot of – we don't have a professional or a junior team. We've got a junior – uh, baseball, junior hockey, but yeah, lacrosse is definitely a sport that is played uh, a lot. And if people are interested in watching a game, I'm sure they could find something while they're out here. Um, is it ever a problem? Because I know obviously Vancouver is sort of the big the big city uh, in the area. Do you ever feel like you're sitting in Vancouver's shadow, or are you? Uh, do you think Victoria's got enough of its own kind of appeal and character that it's it's unique to folks that want to come up to BC? Yeah. That's a great question. It's absolutely unique. Um, Vancouver is a wonderful city. It is a very big city. Uh, if people are looking for a vacation with all the, the amenities of a big city, the kind of the culture of a big city, uh, Victoria has all of that. But it's it's still, as I said earlier, small enough to get around easily. It's quieter. Uh, it's it, There's not there's really not congestion or traffic jams or, I mean, it's really, that's part of the beauty of the city. So I think we stand alone uh, side by side with uh, Vancouver. It's actually funny you say there's no traffic jams. I remember taking the ferry over from uh, Vancouver when I was visiting, and when the, the views on the ferry for listeners who have never done it is actually like, you can't get like you don't really get seasick, but just be aware. Sometimes it's a bit rocky, but um, it was incredible to see everything. And then we pulled in, and I swear we got off of the of the ferry boat and like the speed limit, everyone just drove 10 to 15 to 20 kilometers slower than what they did on the mainland. <laughs> and, um, and there has been a reputation for Vancouver Island itself and Victoria to kind of be the home of, of retirees and stuff. So if you're like, are, is it still the case there? Are you still kind of appealing to, to more of an older demographic or are younger people moving into Victoria and should consider a, a trip out there? Absolutely. I, I mean, with with all due respect to retirees, and they certainly are a large <laughs> part of our population. No, but we have seen over the last eight years an explosion in the young population in Victoria, and that's because uh, our tech tech industry is our, our largest industry. So it's about a five billion dollar a year industry, and we're seeing young people, young families, young businesses. It really, I mean, it's really actually interesting if you walk the streets of Victoria. You know, on a Tuesday night, the the bars are packed, the restaurants are packed, and that's a big difference. Uh, I'm just saying Tuesday because that's not a night that generally people go out. That's a big <laughs> difference from from uh, what we saw eight or nine years ago. So it's a it's a great family destination. It's a great destination for young people. And just because again of the scale of the city, the walkability of it, it's a great great destination for any seniors who are looking to take a trip as well. Awesome. All right, uh, Mayor helps. I've got about twenty seconds left. Any last appeal to listeners on why they should come? to Victoria because we are going to be visiting 13 other capitals so they will also be giving their pitch. <laughs> well I think Victoria is a place that you don't want to miss. Uh, it's it's just 
there, there's, it, it's, as you said, stunning harbor, uh, really entrepreneurial vibe, uh, and I guess the best pitch that I could probably make uh, more safely than any other mayor of a capital city is the immediate access to nature. Sometimes we even see whales coming right into the inner harbor. Amazing. Thanks so much, Mayor Helps. Appreciate it. Uh, I'm Amanda Galbraith. Uh, Come back after the break for Free For All Friday Debate. Welcome to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Here's your host, Amanda Galbraith. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the show. For those of you just joining us, special news. Free For All Friday has been extended to an extra hour for the next 13 weeks while Chatter That Matter takes a break. So you can join me from noon to 2 every Friday going forward to talk about the biggest stories of the week, to chat with the newsmakers and to debate what's going on. But now we go into my favorite part of my week, which is where we debate what's happening. Um, And there was lots of news this week, I'll tell you that. Lots and lots of stuff. So much, in fact, that when... Sam and I, a producer, were talking earlier. Um, we had to throw some off the list because we just couldn't make room for it all. And we have some great guests to talk about that on the show for the next hour. We have Bob Richardson, uh, Senior Counsel at National Public Relations and a former Ontario Liberal Chief of Staff. And Ken Eastwood is the morning show host on News Talk 1290 in London, Ontario. Bob and Ken, welcome to the show. Thanks, Amanda. Great to be here. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Bob. Bob and I, <laughs> listeners, it's great to have you, Ken. And Bob and I um, worked together on Mayor Tory's 2014 campaign. So uh, Bob knows some of my secrets, which he will obviously not be uh, releasing on. <laughs> Darn. Because <laughs> I know some of his. So we could, it's mutual right. assured well, destruction. I'm, I'm going to say maybe just one or two. <laughs> um, well, anyway, I'm super excited to have you on today. Uh, now, and, and especially this first topic, which I think uh, there's so many ways that we can go at it. Um but a few weeks ago on this show, we debated uh, if conservatism in Canada was on the ropes um, in light of what happened in Alberta and the federal leadership race. I did not think so. And I think given the results in Ontario last night, um, I say that Ontarians certainly don't think so either. It was a huge night for the Ontario PCs. Um, they thumped their opponents with a massive majority of 83 seats up from 67. Here's Premier Doug Ford addressing the crowd. This is my proudest achievement as a leader of this party, building a new coalition, expanding our base, creating a more inclusive party where everyone matters. Because never in our lifetime has it been more important for a party to represent all of Ontario. And you kind of see him making touch points there about this new PC coalition they're calling or the the blue collar coalition that they've built with, um, you know, an unprecedented actually like eight endorsements from different labor unions. Now, some of them are bigger, some of whom are not. Leon is a big one. Um, but regardless, it represented a big change um, away from votes that would traditionally go, for example, to the NDP or the liberals. Now, the NDP came in with 31 seats. They retain the official opposition status, um, but Andrew Horvath last night announced she's stepping down as leader after her fourth election in 13 years in that job. Here's Andrew Horvath uh, in an emotional speech. But tonight, it's time for me to pass the torch, to pass the baton, to hand off the leadership of the NDP. And you know what? It makes me sad, but it makes me happy because our team is so strong right now. (laughs) 
the liberals that was horvath and you can hear it in her voice she was crying um at points last night and i think you know it's it's tough to leave any job holding a job you love um i said it earlier on the show i think horvath did the right thing by by stepping down um some are saying she should have done it earlier uh but regardless i don't think she had much of an option it was a much more dignified way to go out for my mind and we also saw liberal leader stephen del duca um, announced he was not going to continue as Liberal leader. Now, the Liberals don't even have official party status here again, which is incredible. Um, they're one seat up to eight seats, and Del Duca also failed to win his seat. Here's him addressing the crowd last night. It will, however, be a movement that will be led by a new leader. Earlier this evening, I informed our party president of my decision to step down from the leadership of our party, and I have asked him to meet with the executive to set a leadership contest for as soon as is reasonable. So Del Duca, I also think making a smart move. Um, now, I'm going to throw it open first, because I think there's lots of ways we can take this debate, but maybe to you first, Bob, given you're a former Liberal Chief of Staff um, and you've worked on different campaigns, what did you make of the results last night? Well, uh, look, uh, I, I wasn't 100% uh, surprised. Number one, Ontarians are pretty good to their premiers and usually give them a second at bat. Five, uh, five of the uh, uh, last eight premiers have got it. Uh, premier Davis, Premier Peterson, Premier Harris, Premier McGinty, and now Premier Ford. So, you know, in that historical context, it, you know, um, Ontarians usually give their premiers, uh, you know, a second at bat. Um, so I think I think the uh, that benefited the government. I think the fatigue from the pandemic benefited the government. People didn't want to talk politics. People did not want to see politicians. I think we saw that in the uh, the turnout. Again, a low turnout favors an incumbent government. The third thing I think that was very helpful for the government is Doug Ford connects personally with people. Yeah, kind of like the guy. I mean, I, I'm not of his party, but I'll tell you, I kind of like the guy. Um, <laughs> And you get a sense that he's working. I know he's returning calls. I have friends who are mayors in Ontario. He calls them back. He's got a service orientation that has been lacking in politics for a while. And I think that's helped him a lot. And finally, he pivoted after his first year in office. I thought his first year in office was a bit of a disaster, but he pivoted and he's now a moderate centrist populist, I think is what we could describe him as. And uh, he works with a whole bunch of different people, whether they're the private sector unions. I think he's got good reach into the ethnocultural communities in, uh, in Ontario. Uh, this is a guy who's learned a lot and is probably much better today as a leader for his party than he was four years ago. So for all those reasons, I think it's not a huge surprise that he won. And I think both of the opposition parties were weak. I think Andrea Horvath was past her best before date. She's a good person. She's been a good public servant, but she's been there a long period of time. And Stephen Del Duca, a bright man. I've known him for a number of years. He just didn't connect with voters. It was almost Michael Ignatieff-esque, if I could put it that way. You know, he assembled a good team. He did the technical stuff that you needed to do properly, but there was no kind of emotional connection with voters. And, uh, as a result of that, it was a disastrous night for the Ontario Liberals. Ken, uh, um, just curious, your take. You know, you're in London. Um, mm -hmm. You're a bit. London's a bit of a sea of orange, surround, or like, sorry, like a little dot of orange surrounded by a sea of blue. Um, what did you make of the results last night? Yeah, 
much like Bob, I think, you know, he calls it fatigue. I would call it uh, apathy. Um, based on what we saw from the, the voter turnout, I think that was on full display. And he's right. I think, you know, we we saw it going right into the, uh, you know, days before the election. Uh, the pollsters were saying, look, this is we're, we're going to see more of the same. And I think that even just hearing those polls probably turned a lot of voters off thinking, well, then what's what's the point? But to your point, yeah, uh, the, the part that did surprise me was how easily. I mean, you talk about a, a supermajority for the conservatives. Yes, except for London. I mean, the three <laughs> incumbent NDP candidates here handily. Like it was not even close, like a 15 percent lead, a 12 percent lead and a 9 percent lead in the three of the four main ridings in London. It was an easy win, basically, for the uh, the three. So what it says to me is I don't know what it says about London voters, like what <laughs> specifically it is in their mind that they that think the so differently from the rest of the province. But I will say what it says to me is there is a serious disconnect between the urban voter and the rural voter that there's something going on in london there's something going on in kitchener uh hamilton um niagara area so and i'm 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 baffled i don't understand i'm not clear on just what that division is yeah and it's interesting you say that because um i'm originally from windsor ontario and typically we do this where we vote whatever the government is we vote the opposite and then nothing <laughs> happens down there and for once interestingly other than one seat they voted with the like both essex and um windsor tecumseh i think voted pc which is unusual uh mm -hmm. for us um bob i've got like 15 seconds here but i did want to get into this voter turnout was 43 percent. you mentioned fatigue um do you think that's a lasting problem or do you think this is just a fact of post-covid I, I think this is a one-off for this election. I think we can get the number back up. I think part of the problem was neither of the opposition parties put forward a compelling alternative. Uh, and I think a lot of people sat on their vote, uh, sat on their hands and stayed home. Yeah, I would, uh, I generally agree with that sentiment. I'm broadly concerned about voter turnout, but I think people, you know, turn out when they're engaged. And certainly I think people were less engaged in this one. Earlier this week, the federal liberals announced sweeping new gun control measures, including a ban on buying handguns. Is this political opportunism or good policy? I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. This is Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, hello, hello. Happy Friday. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, where we debate the biggest stories of the week. And with me today, I have an awesome panel of Bob Richardson, Senior Counsel at National Public Relations and a former Ontario Liberal Chief of Staff, and Ken Eastwood, morning show host on News Talk 1290 in London, Ontario. So I mentioned there was a lot of news this week. Uh, there was a lot of news this week, and this was one of the biggest stories. On Monday, the federal liberal government tabled new gun control legislation that included a national freeze on the purchase, sale, importation, and transfer of handguns in Canada. That's right, not a ban. It stopped short of a full ban because apparently we have just the right number of handguns here in Canada, so we don't get to ban them. Um, we just have to freeze all assets and transfers. Here is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau making that announcement. We're introducing legislation to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. What this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, 
transfer or import handguns anywhere in Canada. He went on to say this. We recognize that the vast majority of gun owners use them safely and in accordance with the law. But other than using firearms for sport shooting and hunting, there is no reason anyone in Canada should need guns in their everyday lives. The government, as part of this, is also pledging to start buying back thousands of banned assault-style weapons before the end of the year. Now, they've extended this and changed this over time, um, so it'll be interesting to see how they'll implement it because we don't have those details. Um, I have many thoughts about this, by the way. I'm not, I don't like guns, and I'm not, um, I'm not a gun rights kind of advocate. That being said, I don't like what I feel is useless or less effective legislation, including buyback programs and handgun bans, which we I know from working um, in Toronto, frankly, we propose those things and they don't work. People hand in like their great, great grandfather's, you know, artisanal hand, like long gun that they've never touched in exchange for a gift card. No, they do. Like that's you. I've seen the, the stuff. So it's brutal. But there are some other major promises in this that we should kind of unpack before we debate it. So one, um, taking away firearms licenses from those involved in domestic violence or criminal harassment. Uh, increasing criminal penalties for smuggling and trafficking of firearms, which I fully support. Uh, a red flag law, which would require people deemed a threat to themselves or others to turn in their firearms to law enforcement, which I think makes sense. Um, some other things to think about as we talk about whether or not this is necessary. Uh, the number of registered handguns in Canada increased by 71% between 2010 and 2020. So there's approximately 1.1 million handguns in this country. Um, but 90% of gun crimes are committed with illegal handguns. So, you know, all of those many millions of legally obtained guns are not really causing the crime or causing the issues. So question to the panel here, um, and there's lots of facts and statistics and, and things we can talk about, but do you think this initiative, this piece of legislation will actually reduce crime? Uh, Bob, you first. Uh, a couple of things. I I'm a strong supporter of gun control, and uh, generally I'm supportive of, a of initiatives like this. Uh, I look at a country like uh, Australia that basically banned uh, guns, and it was a conservative government that did it a number of years ago. They do not have the situations that we see south of the border or even occasionally up here. So overall, I'm generally in favor. But if And in terms of this specific piece of legislation, I think it's a piece of the puzzle. Uh, I don't think on its own it's going to uh, it's going to solve the issue. I think we need to put way more money into guns and gangs task forces, and we need to put a ton of money and get much more serious about stopping the flow of illegal guns at our borders. I think we're doing some stuff, and we've moved a bit in the right direction, but I'm not sure it's well coordinated enough by the police. And I'm not sure we have enough people working, uh, working that angle that it's making a huge difference. So piece of the puzzle, uh, I think it's not a bad idea, um, but there are three or four other things that we need to do if we're going to have a serious impact on this problem. Ken, do you think this new law is going to stop crime here or reduce crime here in Canada? No, I don't. Um, and I do have, I am not a gun owner, nor am I a gun enthusiast. I have friends who are. My dad was actually one of those uh, gun buyback 
uh, our grand, my grandfather's three, <laughs> World War II 303 rifle was one of those guns yep. that got turned in. But uh, what I and I, I completely agree with Bob that this certainly is part of the puzzle. In fact, I, w- I was a little confused as to why the Trudeau government was so uh, made the the handgun part of this bill its top line. I, I would have led with you know we're we're taking on traffickers at the borders. We're increasing yeah. penalties and and giving our our police and and border officers more tools to uh, to deal with that oh and we're also going to do this thing with fire with uh, handguns i'm uh, that's the way i would have phrased it but i think i what i do think this bill will accomplish is uh, I, I think is more of a, a philosophical move in my mind i mean if you could if you could go back to that point in american history where the gun culture really started to explode and and amanda you mentioned it a 70 what was a 71 percent increase between in the last mm-hmm. decade uh, clearly, that's beginning to happen, and we're seeing it. We're seeing that gun culture start to increase in this country. If you could go back to that point where it really exploded in the U.S. and do something tangible about it, I think most Americans would say, yeah, if we could put that horse back in the barn, I'm all for it. Bob, do you think, curious, you think, do you think there's a, a gun culture here? In, I, I mean, I, there's certainly like the shoot, like, um, you know, recreational, I guess, hunters and, and those sorts of things. Uh, obviously, the 71% increase to me is, is startling a little bit. Um, but, you know, I looked this up too. Every year, there's fewer than 800 murders in Canada. Of those, 300 are committed with firearms. And 90% of that is uh not not legal, not registered stuff. So do, do you, do we have a cultural issue here or you know, were the liberals sort of doing what they do, which is pick up on the timing of the shooting in Texas um, and kind of, you know, playing the headlines a little bit to introduce our legislation? I think we have a bit of a cross-border, cross-cultural issue, if I could put it that way. I think increasingly we do, uh, there is a bit of an Americanization of parts of our politics that have gone on. Uh, we, we saw that, uh, we saw that with the, you know, the, the so-called freedom uh uh, march um, in um, on Parliament Hill, et cetera, et cetera. Guns are a big part of their culture down there, and guns are a big part of their uh, political movement down there. Anything we can do to prevent that from uh, becoming pervasive up here, I'm supportive of. So, so I think to a certain extent, yeah, I think it is a growing issue. I think the stats you show show in the last ten years it's a growing issue. Uh, and I think we should be doing everything we can uh, to, to limit it and to keep it really focused on, uh, on uh, uh, guns for sport and guns for hunting. And otherwise, you don't need a gun. And I think that that's not a, that's not a bad approach to the issue. And we ought to be doing everything we can to facilitate that. Ken, you know, we've been talking to date about sort of the, the policy here. There's politics to this, right? There's a federal leadership race with the conservatives um it behooves the liberals to sort of smoke the conservatives out on this right because i think you know the broad spectrum of canadians are in favor of gun control i've got about a minute left here but just curious to you what do you make of the politics of this is this smart politics in addition to you know maybe not so terrible policy I guess. oh absolutely because i think on a on a debate and uh, if you, you, you know, if you do, as you say, flush out the conservatives on this, uh, I, I don't think it's a, a debate that many Canadians would would 
openly side with. Uh, I think there there certainly is a, a very loud minority um, who are, and you know, as far as that gun culture goes, you know, there used to be this perception that you know, yes, Canada has guns, but they're all hunting rifles, and I think that that's changing and we're getting to a point where that's no longer the case and i i still think there's that perception for a lot of canadians and that's why you know most would probably not be in defense of uh, you know uh, allowing a, a more free and easy access to handguns all right so verdict from the panel broadly is we're okay with the legislation it's not perfect and they should actually spend more money on border and illegal guns but we don't mind this which i think maybe my guess is the sweet spot of the broad spectrum of Canadians. And thank you for all your texts, by the way. I've been reading them and seeing lots of stuff come in. Uh, this week, speaking of other big news, British Columbia announced they'll be decriminalizing drug possession in small amounts. Is this a good move or a slippery slope? That's next on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. The free-for-all Friday roundtable continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free-for-all Friday. And if you didn't catch us a little earlier on, a gentle reminder that Free-for-all Friday is now twice the price uh, or twice the time than it normally is for the next 13 weeks. So throughout the summer, you can find me here from noon to two as opposed to just one to two. Uh, and the first hour, we're going to be interviewing um, some amazing guests, talking about the news of the week. Uh, and then the second hours we're doing now, we're going to be debating it with um, awesome panelists from across Canada. And today we have Bob Richardson, Senior Counsel, National Public Relations and a former Liberal Ontario Chief of Staff, and Ken Eastwood, Morning, Sh morning Show host on News Talk 1290 in London, Ontario. So big news this week when the federal government announced they're open to further decriminalization of small-scale possession of hard drugs in jurisdictions across the country. This news came just after BC made national headlines that starting next year, Canadians aged 18 and older will be able to possess small amounts of hard drugs as part of a special legal exemption that's been granted by the federal government. This is the first of its kind in Canada, and it will basically let people in BC possess up to a combined 2.5 grams of opioids, cocaine, methamphetamine, or MDMA. Um, it goes into effect January 31st, 2023, and that exemption, as it's called, will last to January 31st, 2026. Um, what it means is there will be no arrest, charges, or seizures for personal possessions in that threshold. But production of illicit drugs and, of course, trafficking is still considered illegal. Here is Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart, who has been pushing for this for a long time, on CTV's Power Play. My staff sent me the, uh, the numbers of people that have died of overdoses in the, in the previous week. Uh, you know, so I got an email on Monday, it was nine people, 180 saved by our Vancouver Fire Rescue Service and peer responders. Uh, the week before that, it was 12 people. The week before that, it was 10 people. It's just every Monday, week after week after week. He also said when he learned uh, about the news that small possession of drugs would be decriminalized, he started, he felt like crying. I got the email and then right after it, I had a meeting with uh, Minister Bennett, who informed me of their decision to um, sign off on the province's request uh, to decriminalize the small, the small uh, amounts of, of drugs, which will apply to Vancouver. And uh, like I said, I just felt like crying. And, it, you know, it sounds counterintuitive, right, to listening at home thinking, why would we decriminalize drug possession? Um, but there are there are benefits to this and it's an important conversation to have in Toronto when I was working for the mayor we brought in supervised injection sites um, which is where people can go 
um, and inject themselves with drugs under the supervision of medical help. And at the time, I was opposed to it. Um, eight years ago, I thought, no, we should not be doing this. It's just facilitating addiction. Um, and I went and visited uh, the place actually right near where I live that, that would be the host of this. And they talked me through the stigma around um, of drug abuse and how you can't criminalize addiction. And in fact, we need to give people the opportunity to get out. So what this could do if it was in, it is in place in BC or will, one, it reduces prison size and saves money there. So if you're a, a taxpayer that doesn't like to spend lots of money, that's a one way to free it up. You free up law enforcement resources to use to fight crime as opposed to actually putting people in jail for small offenses. And, you know, they just mentioned there are 180 people um, saved by first responders. I mean, that's a lot of people doing that, that frankly, folks aren't getting into the system to be saved because of their uh, stigma. Um, and that it reduces the stigma so user can get help. It removes the barriers. Um, you know, we can't punish addicts out of drug deals or drug, drug addictions. I just don't think it's possible. And interestingly enough, the Canadian chiefs of police are also supporting the move. Here's Prime Minister Trudeau, um, who also mentioned that other cities have expressed interest in doing something like this. And that's what we were really focused on with BC, to make sure that it wasn't just you know, flipping a switch, that it was actually building up capacity and, and making sure that there are many, many different ways to support people, whether it's safe supply, whether it's uh, you know, measures that, that surround this decriminalization. That's why working with a jurisdiction that wanted to do it was priority for us. So to you first, and maybe I'll go to you first, Ken, um, do you think we should, this is a BC only um, piece of exemption. Uh, Toronto Public Health has actually apparently separately filed a similar exemption request. Edmonton's indicated they're interested. Um, are you okay with the patchwork approach um, or do you think we should consider decriminalizing drugs nationally? I 100% think it should be a national conversation for sure. And I think what British Columbia do is doing is is brilliant. London went through a similar, we're a little bit behind uh, the GTA in our, you know, we had a, a supervised consumption site uh, a couple of years ago. It faced significant pushback, but now we see the success of it. The, uh, the police understand that the, the criminal justice system is not the way to deal with a, a person's addiction. Um, the other thing that we did here in London is they've implemented this COAST model, which is a community outreach and support team. So they have team members uh, or nurses, paramedics, and members of the police who are out in the community trying to head off people who may be suffering from mental health problems or addiction before they become involved with the police. And I think this, you know, if we're going to do things like supervised consumption sites, it, it actually makes sense. It's a natural fit to have decriminalization. I mean, you can't on one hand say, all right, we've got this place that you can come to and you can safely use the drugs that are still illegal for you to carry around. That's it. I mean, it's just there's a part of the puzzle that's missing and this is it. Uh, Bob, do you do you think this is something we should look at nationally? Um, do you think this is a slippery slope? We should not do it. And I mean, one of the points I, I, I support this legislation. Um, the one thing I think the prime minister made a, a point about there, and you know, Ken was even talking about, it, is is you do need the local supports in order to facilitate it, right? You can't just decriminalize the drugs and not have the counseling the medical help, the intervention teams that are needed. So we need to make sure those jurisdictions have that availability. But uh, what do you think we should be doing with with this with this legislation uh number one i support this uh but i think um ultimately you, you want to have national legislation but i think you got to bring people a bit along on this one uh and i think the idea of doing this in a more controlled if i can put it that way uh situation in uh, in british columbia to start isn't a bad idea let's be honest the war on drugs has been an abject disaster and failure 
um, and and we need to be we need to be helping people. And there is enough um, there's enough uh, examples out there uh, to show that this approach is definitely worth considering and definitely worth taking a look at. Portugal is the is the good example of that. For the last twenty years, they've effectively been doing this sort of decriminalization, and uh, they've seen an uptake in uh, in in treatment. Um, they saw a huge uh, a reduction in the number of deaths by drugs. They had 131 deaths in, in 2001. It was down to 20 deaths in 2008. And there's a whole raft of other statistics to show this. So it strikes me as it's the right approach. Um, and there are, but, but I think you kind of have to kind of do some communities at first to show that, uh, you know, this isn't evil um, and that, you know, the world isn't going to fall apart. And I think having done that, turning it into more of a national program makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And to pick that up, like when we were putting the supervised injection sites in Toronto um, about eight years ago, I live a block and a half from one. Like I literally, it's like, and I was like, it's right near my new condo. Like I'm not going to be safe. I'll tell you right now, I don't, you don't notice, at least for us in, in the Riverdale community. Um, and, you know, the folks I do walk by, they're often in the service place and the, the, you know, people are, you know, they're, they're just like everybody else, right? They, they need supports. They're getting in and getting the counseling. Like to Bob's point, the world is not going to come to an end, but we may need to bring people along. Um, can, what do you think we do need to do to kind of, cause I'm getting the text by the way, and people are not happy with this. Um, in particular, it's how are we making guns illegal, but drugs are okay. Uh, which is over and I see that. So what do we need to do to bring the public along to sort of say, hey, listen, the war on drugs, to Bob's point, was a failure. If we want to stop people from dying, we need to decriminalize this. I think Bob's right. You know, we need to lead by example. And and this is unfortunately where I think we face a pretty big hurdle because this kind of approach, it takes time. Like the, the Portugal approach, that is that is a long-term uh, way to uh, to approach this. So... To, to have this go into effect in, in British Columbia, it's going to be a long time before I think we actually see it come to, uh, to fruition. Um, so and in that time that it takes for us to watch what's happening in British, British Columbia, how many cities like London, London already has, uh, like every other major city in, in Canada, is developing a pretty solid drug problem. I mean, uh, and, and as proof that the, the criminal justice system doesn't work. So our, our local jail, the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center, outside of the de- detention center. Just about a runway there, Ken. Sorry to jump hey, in. But... Uh, go, right. Just go right ahead. <laughs> Ken's a professional. He gets it. Uh, We can certainly come back to that after the break. When we talk about your dream job as a kid, imagine if your school banned you from saying it. That bonkers story is next on Free For All Friday. You're listening to Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. That, my friends, is the song from Top Gun. Uh, the next topic on our show, which I am shoehorning in because I saw the movie, it's breaking box office records, and I want to talk about it with the panel this week because I had an absolute blast, and it was such a nice thing to do um, after the pandemic. Uh, and would love your take if you've seen it at 71010, what you thought of it. Uh, I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday. We're coming in on the back half of the show. We've been with you for two hours, and for the next 13 weeks, we will be two hours from noon to two 
every Friday, so don't forget. Uh, today on the show, we have Bob Richardson, Senior Counsel at National Public Relations and a former Ontario Liberal Chief of Staff, and Ken Eastwood, Morning Show host on News Talk 1290 in London, Ontario. So uh, Top Gun uh, was released this week. It's been years that it's been delayed. Uh, the 80s movie uh, was iconic, and it has busted out all of the box office statistics. Um, you know, people are returning to theater, some of the most reluctant folks. This is the first movie I've seen in theater in, I think, three years. Um, and apparently some of the biggest, roughly 55% of the ticket buyers are actually over the age of 35, so guilty. And the movie's already grossed $200 million. So I wanted to ask the panel, um, have you seen it? And do you plan on seeing? Are you becoming? Are you part of the Top Gun cult, or are you taking a pass, Bob? Now, Amanda, you can't tell us too much about what's in the movie, but <laughs> I absolutely am going to go out and see this movie. I loved, uh, I loved the old one, and I think this one is going to be great. I've, I've heard nothing but good things about it so far. It sounds like it's fun and energetic and good, and uh, I actually think he's a good actor. I know everybody gives him a hard time, but. Uh, I think he's a, generally a, a good actor. I bet you it's going to be a fun, great movie. He's full. I think he's completely crazy, but I love this movie, and I love the original. <laughs> and um, my, my partner, Mark, and I went, and we were, we were so excited. It was actually a really fun experience in the theater because, like, the theater goers were really excited. People were clapping and, like, hooting, and it just felt, it felt, like, it felt like the before times in a way – that was pretty amazing. Uh, Ken, have you seen it or do you plan on going? Yeah, no, I have not seen it yet. We did. We had a similar experience, though, a couple of weeks ago. We went to see Doctor Strange uh, in the Multiverse of Madness. And same thing, you know, it really felt like it was back to normal. So I'm, I don't know. I, I am looking forward to seeing this, but I, I will say, and this may be the most controversial thing I have said on the Friday Free For All in my <laughs> appearances here. I was not a huge fan of the <gasps> original. I mean, what? I liked it. It was a, it was okay, but ah, uh, it was like yes, a pox upon you, <laughs> oh! <laughs> right? <laughs> I didn't think it was as great as like it wasn't. Uh, in my mind, I would not call Top Gun a classic, like of our Whoa! generation. Ken, I don't, I'm, I don't know, I'm I don't breathless. know. Breathless. Am I still? On? I am but... also. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. I mean, it's so funny. A friend of mine was like, yeah, I started to watch the original. She's a bit younger. Uh, she's like, but I couldn't get through it. I was like, how are you? Who, who are you? How do you? That's crazy. You are a crazy man. Ken. They lost but, me um, in slow motion volleyball. Really? That's no, where they lost me. Culturally, for those listeners who have not gone into the deep cuts of Top Gun, it's also known as possibly one of the, quote, gayest movies ever made is one of its oh, yeah. And certainly <laughs> the volleyball I knew scene. There, I knew there was a reason I liked it. <laughs> same bob same for me too shirtless men to bound um and there may be a uh there may not just be a spoiler but there may be a repeat of the scene uh in the in the sequel and tom cruise may participate but not in jeans so there's uh which was, was on the mystery so anyway this panel immediately to head to the <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right uh we, we love to have a little fun in the last block of the show, uh, which brings me to our last story of the week. Um, this is pretty crazy, and it was Evan Solomon covered it, and I really wanted to, to get into the debate here. So a young boy was asked the question, um, what does he want to be when he grows up from Winnipeg? And Zachary Anderson responded with bartender. This is why he told this. This is what he said why he did the CTV News. It's one way to be creative. You get to socialize and meet new people. I love now, it. Isn't he cute? I know. And so 
this apparently did not sit well with the school who I swear to you, who asked him to change it. So this is what Zachary's mom, Jennifer told the Evan Solomon show this week. I got the explanation that it wasn't in the best interest of the grade four community. I got an email from the principal saying that um, it wasn't in the best interest of my son and the grade four community, and they weren't going to change their mind. So I would just like whatever time capsule that the school has come from to like, they should go back to 1950. But I heard you pop in there, Ken. I think it's really sweet. Apparently the backstory is um, Zachary, some of Zachary's family are bartenders. There's professional bartenders are amazing. I love me a good cocktail. Let me tell you. Um, another great Tom Cruise movie, by the way. Um, but what did you, what did you make of, of this story, Ken? And also curious to you, what did you want to be when you were a kid? What did you want to be when you grew up? Was it a radio host or something else? Fireman, believe it or not, oh. when I was in grade. In fact, I even made the paper. They made a, they did like a little biography of a bunch of grade four kids and little Kenny Eastwood wanted to be a firefighter. But to, uh, to Zach Anderson, I think this is, I think this is a, a symptom of how terribly we have approached our young people in giving them options for what makes a, a successful career, a successful life. Um, I re distinctly remember when I was, you know, met with the guidance counselor when I was in high school and th they sat me down. They're like, all right, Ken, what university do you want to go to? I'm like, oh, is that all the, that's the op the only option I don't have there's nothing okay all right I guess so I went to university for a month and before I realized it was a terrible mistake and somebody happened to mention there's a radio school I'm like wow that's a but they should have told me that in guidance council session I would have signed up that day there we go so you, like I see this is the thing I think is a problem right is even when I was in school so what university you're going to go to and one of the things we were talking about is more into the trades and in bartending is a trade. It's a very, I think it's like a lovely, honorable profession. They're a critical part of our society. Um, Bob, <laughs> do you think that we should have young kids? Is it okay to be a bartender as a young kid? And I would love to know what you wanted to be when you were, when you were little, what was your dream job? I try to think of what I wanted to be. I think, I think I was in the fireman category too, for a while. And then I realized it was too much work. Uh, so I moved on <laughs> from that, but, but look, <laughs> This is rid ridiculous. Oh, this is sort of, I'm not sure if we're allowed to say tight ass on on, on air, but- I don't know, but you know, let's go for it. We need less tight ass education administrators like this. We should be celebrating a kid who's passionate about something, regardless of what it is, and let him embrace it. Um, he may or may not end up being a, a bartender, or he may end up doing that part-time, or he, that may end up paying his way through college or through, uh, through university. There is nothing wrong with a bartender, and I agree with you, there's nothing wrong with a bartender who makes an excellent drink. So, uh, so you know, uh, I just, uh, I think it's the wrong approach by our education friends. Lighten up, have some fun, and embrace the kids and let them uh, and enjoy whatever it is that they're looking at at the moment. There we go. Here, here, lighten up. Let young Zachary be the greatest bartender he could be. Believe it or not, when I was young, I wanted to be a marine biologist. Um, I think because free really was popular. I don't know. Uh, obviously not what I ended up doing for a living. Uh, I do public relations in my day job and get to spend a couple hours with all of you and Bob and Ken on Fridays as a radio show host, which is pretty amazing. So thank you all for listening this week for the extra two-hour 
free for all Friday. Thank you, Bob and Ken. Ken, we may have you back, even though you don't love Top Gun because you're so great. But you know, Come it just on, really changes my can, view of you. You can be my wingman any day. Oh, all right. <laughs> thank you, Maverick. All right, good uh, comeback. Thank you, good comeback. <laughs> thank you so much, show producer, technical producer Mike, and producer Sam. I'm Amanda Galbraith. I'll see you next Friday.